All right. If you'll take your Bibles, please open them to the book of Hebrews. Join me in standing, if you would, out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. If the Lord is willing, it's my intention to finish these two verses today. I think this is the last sermon out of them. If I can get through it all, then uh, we'll, we'll move on next week. So, Hebrews chapter 6, again starting at verse 4. For it's impossible that those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessings from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give to us grace and that you would help us to understand both the necessity and the terror and the beauty of your wrath, God. That it exalts you as other things cannot, and that Rather than having a God who is soft on sin and doesn't care, we have a God who is righteous and holy. And we just ask that you would give us a proper appreciation for the reality of this truth. Open our hearts. Plant it deep in us, God. Let it bear fruit. I pray that you would open my mouth to speak words of truth and that anything that is not accurate or right, you would let fall from my mouth, but that every word of truth be planted deep in our hearts. I pray, God, for your unction. I pray that you would set me aside, that none would see me, but that all would hear you and hear your truth. Help us to deal with a difficult topic with grace and with a winsomeness, God, that is appealing that your truth might stand. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The wrath of God is a terrifying reality. It's so much so that many refuse to even think about it and actively hate anyone who speaks of it. But not only is it terrifying, it is an important reality. And one that's rightly understood both warns and comforts us. This is the intent of the author of Hebrews when he alludes to the wrath to come. This morning, we're going to be thinking about God's wrath, what it means for us, and what it means for those who hate God. Proverbs 11.23 says, The desire of the righteous is only good, but the expectation of the wicked is wrath. Now this is not just poetic dialogue. This is the very truth of God. Those who walk in evil have no expectation of receiving anything from God except wrath and terrible justice. And this fact should cause them to repent and should cause those that love God to examine their own lives and repent of their own indwelling sin. Wrath is a two-edged sword. It can bring blessing to those who rightly understand its use and its presence as a powerful motivation to fly to the cross of Christ. So the first thing we need to understand is that punishment is prepared for those who hate God. Now we have a lot of scripture to go through this morning, so keep your Bibles handy and your fingers nimble. So turn with me first of all to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13 And we're going to read a couple of chunks of this. We're going to read a parable and then Jesus' explanation of that parable. And starting at the 26th verse of Matthew chapter 13. 
I'm sorry, the 24th verse. Another parable he put forward to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and had produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seeds in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. And the servant said to him, Do you want us to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And when the time of the harvest has come, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn. Now skip down to verse 36. Because the disciples asked Jesus, What's all this wheat and tares stuff? And here's what Jesus said. Starting at verse 37, he answered and said to them, He who sows good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those that practice lawlessness. They will cast them into the furnace of fire, and there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So the first thing that we need to understand is the same thing that the writer of Hebrews has been telling us, and that is that those who hate God, those who are false converts, will be among us. There are those who say, yes, I'm a Christian, yes, I believe in God, yes, I'm a part of what you're doing here. But in truth, they don't love God, their lives show that they don't love God, and everything about them is contrary to his word. They walk in wickedness, they walk in evil, and they pursue unrighteousness. Now, it doesn't matter what denomination you're looking at, these people are going to be among us, and in fact, many of them are going to be the leaders at some of the highest levels of those denominations. People who love wickedness do not love God. People who accept wickedness and tolerate it and say, oh, that's okay, we're not really going to worry about that, do not love God. It doesn't matter what denomination they come from. It doesn't matter what position they hold. Somebody who says, I will not act in righteousness, but instead I will tolerate evil, does not love God, period. Okay? So they are among us. And this is what the writer of Hebrews has been talking about. They are false converts. They are people who have enough knowledge of God to put on a good show. They are people who, who, who gather in just enough truth to be able to think and maybe even believe that they accepted Christ because they had an emotional wiggle in their liver. But that entire reality denies what the truth of Scripture says. They are among us. They are false. And they will be removed at the end of the age. You say, well, how in the world did they get here? Well, they were drawn by the general call of the gospel. Somebody said something, they listened, they said, oh, that makes sense. But their hearts were never changed. They still hate God. They're not born again. They're not alive. They are dead flesh masquerading as living flesh. So in the verses that we skipped over, look in chapter 13. I'm sorry, after this. I'm not there, but here. Look at verse 47. Chapter 13. Again, the children of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore. They sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. 
So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. And there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to them, Have you understood these things? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he said to them, Therefore, in every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. So, how do they become people among us? Well, the dragnet goes out. The general call of the gospel goes out. There are those who can listen to the truth of the gospel and say, well, okay, that kind of makes sense. And I'll, I'll accept it insofar as it goes along with what I want to be. There are some people who are just generally nice. There are some people who are just generally pretty decent folk. And those sometimes get caught up in this. They, they just, yeah, okay, I, I want to do good to people. I want to be nice. I want to be kind. I, I want to I do unto my neighbor as, as I want them to do unto me. That all makes sense. So I'm going to act that way. And if that's the only determination, then from an outward appearance it becomes very difficult to determine, is this person converted or is this person not converted? Because the gospel doesn't seem to strike against their natural inclinations. At at the end, when, when the gospel comes to bear on our sin, then the old man rises up and screams and writhes and says, no, 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 that part's mine. I want to keep that bit. And those who are converted will fight against that. It still happens to us. But we'll fight against it because we don't want to live in a way that dishonors God. And every single person who loves and obeys the Father will have some place in their life, and often several some places in their life, where they recognize that sin still abides and there is a fight for the condition of their soul. And they will fight that fight. And that fight itself is valuable to us. That fight itself strengthens us. That fight itself makes us more than what we would be without it. But those who are drawn by the general call of the gospel and who who are false converts, none of that's really taking place. They just agree with the simple things that make sense and they agree with the simple things that go along with their natural inclinations and they'll just drift through. In the end, we need to understand that our reality is driven by Scripture in its totality. We need to understand that everything that God says is 100% true, regardless of how we feel about it. So we need to come to his word and say, God, please help me understand what it is that you want me to be. And in the end, those who walk in, in that lie will be proved out at the end of all things. They live lives that are self-serving and lives that are only about their own desires. Look at Matthew chapter 25. Skip forward just a few verses to Matthew chapter 25. And we're going to start reading at verse 31. Now when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all His holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. And the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate from them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. He will set the sheep on His right hand but the goats on His left. And the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, and feed you, or thirsty, and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger, and take you in, or naked, and clothe you? 
When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those in the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. You say, well, so how is this not a gospel of works? Well, this is not a gospel of works because in the end, it's the outflowing of the love that God has put into our hearts when he makes us alive. When when God causes life to be born in us, the only thing that wants to come out of love is love. That life produces something in us that's not there. And the love that God gives us is a selfless love. It's a love that doesn't really need to think about the fact that you love the brethren. It doesn't really need to think about the fact that God calls you to be engaged in the practice of loving the brethren. That's just the natural outflow. And in the end, I want you to notice something that was present in all three of those parables. What happens to those who are not of God? They are destroyed. They are are cast out and cast off into the fire. This is the punishment that is reserved for those who hate God. There is no other option. There is no plan C. You don't get a chance to do it over. You're not going to come back as another person with another chance at life to try again. You're not going to go to some temporal place of a minor punishment so that you can pay for your sins and get it right and then move on from there. None of those things are true. What the scripture tells us is it is appointed unto man but once to die and after this the judgment. And it is the judgment in which you will be brought either into the kingdom of God for all of eternity or cast out of his presence into into hell for all of eternity. And there is no other option. There is no other place. There are two possible addresses for an eternal life. And the reality is, is that every single person will live forever. It's just a matter of where they take up their residence, either heaven or hell. And this is the reality that faces us. Those who hate God have a punishment coming. But there are also temporal punishments, which the scripture also refers to as God's wrath. Now, these do not satisfy the final wrath of God. And they can be very specific to an individual, and they are designed to warn. They are designed to execute justice. They are designed to add to the full measure of God's wrath. So sometimes the temporal punishments which come upon a person only harden them in their sin. Give them more opportunity to hate God. Give them more opportunity to cry out against Him for His justice and for His judgments and for His truth. When this happens, all this is doing is adding to the full measure of somebody's sin and adding to the full measure of God's wrath. By definition, temporal judgments and temporal punishments are by nature temporary. But they can also be more general. And often the innocent and the righteous may also be affected by these. Think of droughts, plagues, general unrest, economic difficulties, war, etc. These things happen. And it doesn't mean that God is angry with you as an individual if you are under a temporal judgment which is being exercised over a people. 
So when we look at what's going on in our nation and we see the wickedness that is rampant and we see the evil things that are happening and the chaos that is being produced out of an ineffective government and an ineffective leadership, we see that as God's wrath. We see the advance of the homosexual agenda. Romans 1 tells us that is a display of God's wrath. It is not that if that doesn't end, God's going to have wrath for us. What the scripture tells us is that the advance of the homosexual agenda is God's wrath. He's already pouring it out. He is already unhappy with us. Okay? Now, that doesn't mean that he is unhappy with you individually. But it does mean that there are things that are going to affect you which are God's temporal wrath upon a people. You need to have that distinction. And you need to understand that when that happens, you still are called and obligated to fly to God instead of withdrawing away from him. Okay? Those who are not born again will withdraw away from him, will cry out against him, will hate him for his judgments, will hate him for the things that happen. Those who are born again will cry to him and say, Lord, I don't understand. I don't don't know what's going on, but I need your help. This This is wrong. This is broken. These things are happening. And that tension within us between our our discomfort over the circumstances of our nation and our discomfort over the circumstances of our lives and our desire for God, that tension cries out for the truth of our being alive. Okay, that tension is an important thing, and it's a good thing for you to be aware of. But sometimes, the the reality is, is that God is extending a personal judgment to you for a sin in your life. That happens. Now, when God exercises a temporal judgment For a child of his own, he is actually executing mercy for them. Look at Isaiah chapter 54. Isaiah 54, starting at verse 4, we find this. Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed, neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame. For you will forget the shame of your youth, and you will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. For the Lord has called you like a forsaken woman, and grieved in spirit like a youthful wife when you were refused, says your God. Verse 7, for a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. With a little wrath, I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting kindness, I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. So what's he saying? Well, we know that God was commanding judgment to be brought upon Judea, brought upon Judah. And Isaiah was speaking in the time immediately before the fall of Jerusalem. He and Jeremiah were contemporaries in some parts of their ministries. And Isaiah was giving the prophecies about the things that were going to happen. And the first 39 chapters of Isaiah are are really the judgments of God being pronounced. But the last portion, the last 27 chapters of Isaiah, are are expressions of grace and expressions of restoration, expressions of his forgiveness and his mercy. And so this is what we're seeing. And what he's telling them is, look, there's bad things coming. And you're going to feel like I've hidden my face from you. And in fact, I have hidden my face from you for a while. And for a little while I hid my face from you to exercise judgment and to teach you what you need and to teach you who I am. I hid my face from you because I am righteous and I will not tolerate unrighteousness in my children. But I'm going to turn from that and I'm going to turn back to you. 
and I'm going to restore you. And for a little while there was judgment, and for a little while there was pain. But for all of eternity, there is everlasting mercy towards you. And you need to remember, and you need to keep in mind, that the greatest expression of that everlasting mercy is the person of Jesus Christ. Whatever comes into your life, whatever pain, whatever sorrow, whatever hardship, whatever difficulty, whatever judgment from God comes into your life, you need to know that the giving of Jesus Christ outweighs all of it. That the fullness of who Christ is overcomes every difficulty, every sorrow, every trial, every pain, every misery. And if you understand that in the right perspective, then you can look at the temporal judgments of God that are being executed in your life for your sin and say, God, thank you that you love me enough to discipline me. Thank you that you call me a son or a daughter and that you call me your own so that I am confirmed in that judgment that I actually am yours. Remember what the scripture tells us in Hebrews 12, that God disciplines every son that he receives, that he chastises everybody that he calls his own. Okay, so when God is, is exercising that temporal judgment in your life, it is a mark of his mercy. So one of the things that we need to always be doing is examining our own hearts. When bad things happen, look at our lives, look at our situation, look at our actions, look at our behaviors, look at the things that are going on and say, Lord, is there something? Sometimes there are, are not. Sometimes it's just this is a judgment that's falling on everybody and it's just it, it hurts. But sometimes the Spirit, when you ask the question, will point his finger directly at the thing that should not be there and say, that thing is sin, and I want you to stop it. And when he does that, then, then you are obligated to obey. You're obligated to press in and, and to seek his face and to do what he tells you to do. Now, God can also preserve us from these judgments, these temporal judgments. Look at 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 4, it says, If God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down into hell, and delivered them to chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on a world of the ungodly, turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, and condemned them to destruction, making an example to those who, out, who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Verse 9 says, Then the Lord surely knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment, especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lusts of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. So God is perfectly capable of delivering you from the temporal judgments that are going on around you. He is perfectly capable of putting a hand of protection over your life and over your property and over your world and making sure that these things do not fall on you. So, although the temporal judgments that happen to the nation or the, or the area as a whole are not necessarily judgments against you, keep in mind, if God can protect you and chooses not to, there may be something in it for you to learn. There may be something in it that is there for you as well, something that you need to understand by the circumstances that are going on. And, and so it's always fair to ask, God, what is it? that you want to teach me through these circumstances. Even if you look at your life and you look at your involvement in things and say, I am innocent of this, 
There are still things that, that are being taught to you and being made for you by the judgments of God because God can preserve those who are his own if he chooses to do so. So these temporal judgments are there. And God's righteous indignation cannot be satisfied by mere temporal judgments. Okay? God's righteous indignation for sin can only be satisfied by something greater. And it is God's right to punish the wicked for their sin. Do you understand that God deserves to be loved by all of his creation? Every single being who has ever been owes God a debt of obligation of loving him. Every single being who has ever lived owes God the debt of obligation of obedience to his every command. There is no part of God's word which any being has a right to say, I don't like that, so I'm not going to do it. You do not have the right, no one has the right to stand in judgment over God's word. It stands in judgment over us. The word of God speaks to us of the truth of God. And it tells us who he is and what he commands. And our only response to what the word of God says is, yes, Lord. That's it. That is the only response that is acceptable. Yes, Lord. I will do what you say. Change my heart. Change my mind. Change my life. Yes, Lord. That obligation is not only an obligation which belongs to the righteous. It belongs to everyone. So the man that stands outside and screams and yells and hates God and says, it's my right to do so, okay, in the law of this land, it is your right to do so. But in the law of God, which is the only law which you will answer to in the end, it is not your right to do so. And you will be punished for your rebellion against your creator. God is owed a debt of love by all of his creation. And he gives his law to guide us. He gives his law to allow us to understand what he wants us to do. Understand this very simple fact. There is not one person who is alive in the United States today who has any excuse for not knowing what God requires of them. Not one. Because there are more Bibles than people. And I would hazard a guess and say probably by a factor of ten. The law of God is readily available for anybody who would take it up and read it. There is no excuse. There are churches on every corner, and some of them are even good. (laughs) The truth is actually being spoken, and not only here, but all across this land, there are tiny little churches that are speaking the truth of God. They are without excuse. The law has been given. God's word has been given to guide us. And he gives good gifts to men, which we can neither appreciate nor understand. You have no idea how good and rich God's love is towards you. One of the things that will be revealed in the end when we stand before him is just how good he has been to you. And sometimes he has been better to you in the things that you wish he didn't do than he ever was in the things that he did. Amen? Amen? Sometimes it's the things that we look at in our lives and we say, God, you could do anything else, but please change this thing. Sometimes that thing is the best thing God ever did for you. And when you're wiser, you'll get that. Now, I can't say that about my own things. I can look at your life and say, yeah, when you're wiser, you'll understand this. But it doesn't work that way for me. That's the way it works for all of us. 
we don't see our own situations so clearly. So one of the things we have to do is pray for wisdom, that God would give us understanding, that God would give us the ability to look at these things and say, Lord, thank you for it. Help me thank you for it. Help me mean it. Help me be honest in this. Because his gifts are not only the easy things that we can see, but his common grace extends to all men. And there is not a man alive, not a woman alive, not a person alive or ever has been alive or ever will be alive who could say with any honesty that God has not been good to them. Okay? Understand that. He is owed love. He is owed obedience. And our actions are worthy of punishment, for our wickedness is reprehensible. When we sin against God, we are actively rebelling against the sovereign of the universe, against the God who spoke everything into being, and who holds us together by the singular act of his omnipotent will. Colossians 1.17 says that in Christ all things hold together. He is the reason that the atoms of your body are bound together and all He has to do to destroy you is stop holding them. It's His power. It's His will. It's His glory. And what we do when we rebel against Him is worthy of punishment. Look at Jeremiah chapter 5. Jeremiah chapter 5 Starting at verse 7. It says this. How shall I pardon you for this? Your children have forsaken me and sworn by those that are not gods. When I had fed them to the full, then they committed adultery and assembled themselves by troops in the harlots' houses. They were like well-fed, lusty stallions, and every one neighed after his neighbor's wife. Shall I not punish them for this, says the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on a people such as this? Skip down to verse 26. For among my people are found wicked men. They lie in wait as one who sets snares. They set a trap. They catch men. As a cage is full of birds, so their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they have become great and grown rich. They've grown fat. They're sleek. They surpass the deeds of the wicked. They do not plead the cause, the cause of the fatherless, yet they prosper The right of the needy they do not defend. Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? That's twice he's asked that question. Now skip to chapter 9. All the prophets among us think this is coming again, and you'd be right. Look at verse 7. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will refine them and try them. For how shall I deal with the daughter of my people? Their tongue is an arrow shot out. It speaks deceit. One speaks peaceably to his neighbor with his mouth, but in his heart he lies in wait. Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on a people such as this? Beloved, this is a fair question. Our unrighteousness deserves the wrath of God. Even now, even as believers, even as people who are washed in the blood of the Lamb, it's good for us to keep in mind that our sins deserve His wrath. When we rebel against Him, we are adding to the sufferings of Jesus. We are adding to His pain. We are adding to His humiliation. We are adding to His sorrow. 
And if you love him at all, you recognize that that deserves punishment. It's the mercy of God that will hold back the wrath that that is deserved by your sin. So understand that when God talks about punishing the wicked for their evil, he has every right to do so. He has every right to bring his wrath to bear in the fullest possible sense of the word on every single person that is not found in Christ. That is his right to do that. It would be his right to do that to all of us without exception. And if he chose to save nobody, he would be righteous. If he chose to save nobody, he would still be merciful. But he chose to save. So let us, at least, not be angry with God for the necessity of his wrath. Rather, let us understand that it is his right to exercise wrath. It is his right to bring judgment and condemnation upon all who hate him. And he is righteous to do so. This is who we worship. This is the truth. And the wrath of God is terrible. None will endure it. Jeremiah 10.10 says, The Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. And at his wrath the earth will tremble and the nations will not be able to endure his indignation. This wrath is not necessarily a forecoming reality. It is that, but it is not necessarily only a forecoming reality. Listen to how Jesus described it in John chapter 3. Starting at verse 34, Jesus says, For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God does not give the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. Now that means they're already under the wrath of God. It's already a part of their lives. And it will continue to abide on them. They are already condemned. And those who are found in Christ are already saved. Look at Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 starting at verse 22. And Paul says this with such strength and clarity. And it's one of those passages that a lot of people try their best to explain away. Romans chapter 9, starting at verse 22. What if God, wanting to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Did you hear what Paul just said? Those who are not found in Christ have been prepared for destruction. They are vessels of wrath. They are those whom God has determined he will punish. And and we need to understand that the grace of God is exactly that. It is grace. It is not deserved by us. It is something extra. And when he gives grace, he gives grace. And when he withholds it, he is righteous. And it is his to give and his to withhold. And it belongs not to any man to stand in judgment over God, nor to think that he can influence what God is doing. It is his power. 
and it is his work. And wrath is reserved for those who are not found in Christ. And understand that the wrath that is coming is God's own vengeance. Look at Revelation chapter 11. Revelation 11. People always say, how come you don't preach out of Revelation? Well, here I am, and they won't like it. Revelation chapter 11, starting at verse 15. The seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come the time of the dead, that they should be judged, that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings and noises and thunderings and earthquake and great hail. Skip down to chapter 14, verse 17. Then another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, and he also having a sharp sickle. Another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire, and he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle, gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and the blood came out of the winepress up to six horses' bridles, for 1,600 furlongs. That translates to about 180 miles. Bridle deep for 180 miles. That's a lot. Chapter 15, verse 1 says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels from the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. This is the judgment and the wrath and the vengeance of God for the unrighteousness of man who has suppressed the truth in unrighteousness, according to Romans chapter 1. And the worst offenders of that are those who sit in church and pretend. Those who are not the people of God, but want to be acting like the people of God for the purpose, according to Paul and Timothy and Thessalonians, for the purpose of destroying the people of God. They are those who who lead churches astray, those who spread dissension, those who, who, who tear brothers apart with unruly gossip, those who continue to walk in ways that are contrary to the truth of God. It is vile, it is evil, it is worthy of punishment. And this is what God says, that vengeance that I'm going to execute. It's mine to execute, and I will do it. I will take my vengeance, and in the end, I will take them, and the full measure of their sin will be punished. And in the end, the evil works of man have not only affected their own lives, but we have actually subjected the earth to the wrath of God. Romans chapter 9 tells us that the earth was subjected to futility. I'm sorry, Romans chapter 8, verses 19 to 21, says that the earth was subjected to futility because of him who subjected it in hope. 
So what, what that's telling us, and remember we just read there in, in, in Revelation 11, that part of the punishment is, is that God is going to bring his wrath on those who destroy the earth. Now, I'm not, it's not about green and environmental and all that stuff. He's talking about the sin that is actually the plague which is upon the earth. Those who have subjected the earth to futility and who have subjected the earth to the wrath of God. The things that are wrong with the earth are the, are the reason, the sin is the reason for them. They are the result of sin. They are the consequence of our rebellion against God. Now, in some people's minds, there is this disconnect. They look at, they look at the scripture and they'll say, well, that's the God of the Old Testament. I worship Jesus, and he's a God of love. Like, like Jesus and God are not the same person. Now all they're doing when they say things like that is confessing that they know not who Jesus is, and they know not who God is, and they have no part in him. They're just confessing their ignorance, and they're confessing their lostness. But understand this. According to Scripture, the wrath of God belongs to the Son. It's the wrath of God that Jesus will be executing. His mission is the righteousness of God. What Jesus came to do was to make sure that the righteousness of God was executed on the earth. So look at Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, starting at verse 7, Jesus, uh, this is uh, what Jesus is saying. He says, he saw many of the Pharisees, I'm sorry, this is John the Baptist speaking. He saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism. He said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water under repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So Jesus' mission, according to John the Baptist, was to bring about the righteousness of God. Now turn to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2, and I want you to see this because we see the connection between the wrath of God and the person of Christ very clearly laid out in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord's and his against, against his anointed. Wow. Let's try that again. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and let us cast their cords away from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh, and the Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his great wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, the ends of the earth for your possession. And you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's wheel. Now therefore be wise, O king, and be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. 
When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. So we see it starts off with God being angry over the unrighteousness of men, but then it ends up where? The son's wrath. It ends up with Jesus himself saying, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish. You see, everybody wants to make this this fight between God and Jesus, but understand that God's wrath and God's mercy are not ever at odds. God's love and God's justice are not ever in, in opposition to each other. God's mercy is satisfied, and God's justice is merciful. It is God's totality which is our hope, and therein we must understand, because in the end, his vengeance is terrible. Look at Revelation again, chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6, starting at verse 12. When I looked, he had opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became as black as sackcloth, and the moon became like blood. The stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. And the sky receded as a scroll when it's rolled up and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. The kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in caves and in rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. And from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Hide us from the wrath of who? The Lamb. Hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. At the end, even those who do not know who God is, even those who deny Jesus will be calling out, Jesus' wrath is upon us. Hide us. This is the truth, and it is not that God and Jesus are in opposition to this, because in the end, the final victory is Jesus's. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him out on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has a name, he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the righteousness of God made real. This is the righteousness of God being finally produced for us to see in its totality. And none will escape the final victory of God. And none will escape the final judgment of God. And in the end, the wrath of God is not just the temporal reality, but it is the reality of eternity. For hell is eternal. No one escapes the judgment of God. Go forward one more chapter, Revelation chapter 20, starting at verse 10. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose whose faith the earth and heaven fled away. 
and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things that were written in them. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire, and this is the second death. And anyone not found in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This fire will never be quenched. Remember Matthew 25, Jesus called it everlasting fire. It is a fire prepared for the devil and his angels, and it is their punishment. Satan does not rule hell, never has, never will. He is not in hell. He is alive and well on planet earth, seeking to do harm to the people of God. Peter tells us that the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And in the end, we need to understand that hell is a place of punishment for him. He doesn't want to go there. He's not going to be in charge there. It is the wrath of God which is on display in hell. God's presence is in hell. It is not a place where God is not. The scripture tells us, if I make my bed in hell, lo, there you are. God's presence is there. It is just his presence in wrath. It is an eternal display of God's wrath. Which is why the scripture says that they, are, that they were vessels prepared for destruction. Because if God were to exercise his wrath on us as we are right now, we would be completely destroyed. But God instead will give them bodies fit for destruction, just as he gives us bodies fit for glory. He will give to them exactly what is their due. Remember that God has the right to punish wickedness. It is a place of righteous fire, and holy indignation. Look at Isaiah 66. Isaiah chapter 66, starting at verse 14, it says, When you see this, your heart shall rejoice, and your bones shall flourish like grass, and the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants and his indignation to his enemies. For behold, the Lord will come with fire, with his chariots like a whirlwind, to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and his sword the Lord will judge all flesh, and the slain of the Lord will be many. Now skip down to verse 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me. And they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm does not die, and their fire is not quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Now what does this tell us? This tells us that in some capacity, part of the worship of heaven will be the praise of God for the eternal justice of his wrath. Now I know that's hard for us to hear. I understand that that is a difficult truth to be able to say that part of what we're going to do in heaven is to go forth and look upon those who are in hell and say, God, you are praised for this, for it is right and it is true and it is just. But beloved, understand this. Our problem with this truth comes from the fact that we love people more than we love God. Our problem with this fact comes from the fact that we say to ourselves, well, there might be somebody that I love in hell. And I don't know anybody who would be able to say with any honesty that that's not true. There are people that we all have loved who are already in hell. And people who we all love right now who might be in hell soon. 
that is a truth, that is a reality. These are our neighbors. They are our friends. They are our relatives. They are the people that God has put into our lives. And it is our responsibility to carry to them the truth of the gospel so that might not take place. But we are also obligated to recognize the truth that if God does not choose to save them and they end up in hell, then we still love him and we still worship him and we still praise him. And one day we will stand in his presence and we will see them in hell and say, God, you are righteous. You are just in what you have done. And I worship you and praise you for all of this. Now that is something that will require maturity and obedience that I do not yet possess. But I recognize that it's needed. And I recognize that it's truth. And I recognize that this is difficult for us, which is one reason why we dare not ignore it. It's one reason why we must understand these things and press in to understand them and pray about them and say, God, please help me. Because the reality of hell should motivate our evangelism. It honors the righteousness of God that those who hate him ought to be punished, but it also honors his mercy when his people see that and say, God, help me be faithful in evangelism so that they might not go. I don't know who God will save. You don't know who God will save. It's our calling to carry the gospel to all as if they can be saved. It's our calling to carry the gospel to say, Lord, here is the offering of these people. Please, honor that. Honor them. Bless them. Give them grace. Give them mercy. Because mercy is still available. God remembers His mercy towards us. Habakkuk 3.2 says, Lord, I have heard your speech and I was afraid. That's a right response. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In your wrath, remember mercy. What a prayer. God, in wrath, remember mercy. We are not appointed to wrath. Okay? If you love Christ, if you belong to Him, if you are found in Him, you do not need to fear the wrath of God like somebody outside of Christ. You are not appointed to wrath. You have been appointed to life. You were chosen by God, according to Ephesians 1, before the foundations of the universe were laid. You were chosen in the Beloved for salvation. You were chosen for life. You were appointed unto life. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 says, God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the glory of this is that the same Son who executes God's wrath is our advocate who delivers us from that same wrath. Okay, as we laid out that Jesus is the one treading out the winepress of the wrath of God. He is the one executing the judgment of God. He is the one with the sword. He is the one with his robes dipped in the blood of the unrighteous. He is the one who is executing the divine, holy, righteous, and perfect wrath of God. But he is also the one who bore that wrath on our behalf. He is the advocate that stands between us and the wrath of God. So, Understand this dynamic. If the one who is called to execute the wrath is also the one who has preserved you and said, I'm not going to execute my wrath on Peggy. She is my beloved sister. That's, that is mercy. And in that mercy is comfort and confidence and grace and peace. That fear of God's wrath does not ever need to touch your heart. Because your advocate is the one who is responsible for the wrath. It would be a conflict of interest for him to come against you with wrath. 
Amen? Amen? He's already paid for it. He's already taken it out of the way. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says, To wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. And beloved, this is the day of escape. Today is the day of mercy. There is no promise of another. And I urge you, if you are within the sound of my voice and do not know Jesus Christ, fly to the cross of Christ today. Because he has made a way for you to escape this terrible reality of God's wrath. There is no other option. There will be no other hope for you to be delivered from the wrath of God. There will be no other hope for you to escape hell but to be found in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Turn there with me. We're going to start reading at verse 21 and then read a little bit into chapter 6. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. I have one more thing I'd like to share with you just as a thought. Psalm chapter 7 says that God is angry with the wicked every day. And yet, here they are still among us. Okay? If he's angry with them and has not yet destroyed them, does that not speak to you of his forbearance and hope? Does that not speak to you of a day given to carry the gospel? Beloved, this is that day. While God is angry with them, He still grants them room for repentance. And He still grants to them the offer of the gospel, which you carry with beautiful, blessed feet. Take the gospel to the lost. Speak to them of the truth of who Christ is. Speak to them of His power to forgive, His willingness to receive them, and of the efficacy of his blood to deliver them from the wrath which they so richly deserve. Do not be ashamed of the wrath of God when you speak to the lost. Do not be ashamed of telling them what the stakes really are. But also, do not withhold one shred of the majesty of the mercy that's offered in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give to us grace in this day, and I pray that you would help us to be found faithful. God, help us to know that in you there is hope, and in you there is life, and in you there is forgiveness. Help us to know that the gospel is powerful for the saving of men's souls. God, I pray that there would be no one who hears my voice who would fall under the wrath of God. I ask for the inheritance promised that you will give to us the nations as an inheritance and give to us Onega as an inheritance and give to us the residents of this place and everyone who comes into this place. Give to us the lost as our inheritance, God. Let us 
bring them with us that Christ would be honored. We ask it that he would be loved by those who now hate him and that the lamb who was slain would receive the full reward of his suffering. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.